0: Land tax is one of those taxes that is the governments love because it's almost very difficult to avoid if the government implements their tax policy correctly because unlike goods and services, you know, the land doesn't go away. So it, it's, it's very difficult to avoid land tax by saying, I don't own the land. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm.
1: Welcome to episode 270 of Tax Talks, this is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. In episode 248 we discussed how land tax is calculated and went through the different exemptions and I urge you to first listen to episode 248 if you haven't done so yet. In this episode, Jeff Steen of brown Steen Lawyers in Sydney will discuss with you how you or your clients might be able to reduce the land tax you pay and also go through two listener questions. The first question to Jeff is whether changing a discretionary trust to a fixed unit trust would save land tax? And this is also a listener question from Teresa Vesala emailed in on the 8th of September. Teresa uses the following example. Let's say you have a discretionary trust that owns a block of flats. The land value of this block of flats for land tax purposes is about 1.562 million and the trust pays $25,000 in land tax each year. And it is this high because a discretionary trust doesn't qualify for the general threshold. However, If the trust was a fixed unit trust, it would qualify for the general threshold. So Theresa's question is, can we change the trust from a discretionary trust to a fixed unit trust to save on land tax? And if we can, how do we do that? And what stamp duty and CGT would that trigger, assuming that the market value is 3 million and the cost base is 2 million, so there is a 1 million capital gain.
0: So there's a little bit to unpack there, Heidi. The first thing is how is land tax assessed? And in part, the land tax has very little to do with the cost base and the market value. Obviously, Sharitha's has asked those so that we can comment on the Capital uh, capital gain. So the land tax is assessed on the value of the land, the unimproved value of the land, as determined by the valuer general or subject to appeal. The second thing then is what happens if we're converting a discretionary trust to a fixed trust? So I'm not sure with the, I agree with the comment that the fixed trust would pay no land tax because the general threshold is less than 1.562 million. So if the land value is, is 1.562, you'd still get the the land tax free threshold but you'd be subject to land tax in respect of the uh, value over the threshold.
1: You would pay less land tax.
0: But certainly the changing a discretionary trust to a fixed unit trust is a resettlement. It's a resettlement under almost every definition of what constitutes a resettlement. And so you would have a capital gains tax triggered and in most situations there will be a stamp duty liability. There are some situations and, and particularly when the OSR, the Revenue New South Wales first introduced the concept of having fixed unit trusts, that they would allow a trust to restructure without incurring stamp duty. But that concession period in theory has passed, although my understanding is that the Commissioner will still permit people to restructure for that purpose without assessing the trust as a resettlement.
1: I see, but it's not certain that they will. So, if you if absolutely,
0: you, and there's no statutory basis for them to do so.
1: Could you ask beforehand before you do it to see yes. whether it would trigger? Yes. it?
0: Yes. What you would do is send to the send to the Office of State Revenue all of the documents that you intend to do, and have them signed by somebody that is not essential to the transaction happening. So that if the Office of State Revenue forms the view that they should give you an adverse assessment then you simply say, well, the person's never actually going to sign it now, so that thank you for your opinion, but we're not going to do it. And that's one way of getting an effective private ruling from the Stamp duties Office.
1: Hold on, tell me that again. So you (laughs) prepare everything and you have, have it signed by somebody who is not privy to the contract?
0: Well, it's not so much they're not privy to the contract, but that they're not essential to the passing of the land or the resettlement. So, for example, if you have a trust deed and the variation power requires the consent of the appointor but it's the trustee that has to make the variation then you might have the variation deed signed by the appointor to give consent in advance to the transaction send that to the stamp duties office before the trustee signs it. it and because the trustee hasn't yet signed it it's still able to be assessed because one party has signed the document but the trustee may never sign it which means if a trustee never signs it the document never has legal effect and therefore any adverse stamp duty assessment can be contested.
1: Okay and Revenue New South Wales or another revenue office they will decide on these documents even though the trustee hasn't signed yet?
0: Yeah because the theory is that the documents are liable for duty or, or can be assessed for duty when the first person has signed it.
1: Okay, Okay. so that's a clever way. You prepare everything, you have the appointer sign it, you send it in, you see whether you have to pay stamp duty. If you don't, then you go ahead and the trustee signs. And if it does trigger stamp duty, then you say, oh, sorry, the trustee doesn't sign, we don't do it. Okay, that's a very clever way. So that means if you do change from a discretionary trust to a fixed unit trust through the amendment of the trust deed, and let's assume stamp duty is not triggered, then you still have the capital gains tax, pay capital gain on the 1 million. But however, eventually you would have to pay tax on the capital gain anyway. So you just bring it. Yeah, it's a
0: claw forward. forward. Yeah, yeah, it is a claw forward. But, you know, whenever you're paying stamp duty, you know, the cost of that claw forward, if we assume that there's a zero interest rate, then sure, by all means, if you've got the cash to pay the, Capital gains tax in advance, then do so.
1: The property is not an active asset in the business, it's a passive asset. Is there a rollover provision somewhere in the Tax Act? Because to the best of my knowledge, all rollover provisions are for active assets. Is there one for a passive asset?
0: There are rollover provisions for passive assets, but they only apply in limited circumstances. So, for example, investment asset, and I roll it into a company in exchange for shares in that company, then I can get a 122A rollover. I can get rollovers for passive assets in family law breakdowns. Um,
1: yeah, and I yeah. think when it's when it gets destroyed, when when there's when an asset that is destroyed, or,
0: or when it's resumed. Yeah, yes. but there are there are limited circumstances where you can still get a rollover for passive, but typically we use the concept of having a rollover to describe the small business rollover.
1: Yes, so that means in this scenario where we amend the deed to turn the discretionary trust into a fixed unit trust to lower our land tax going forward. When we have a CGT event like that for a passive asset, it's unlikely that there's a rollover we can use to avoid the um, capital gains tax.
0: Yeah, in, in an estate planning context, if you said this land is going to be owned by our family for a very long time, we have no intention of selling it, then what you could do, Is roll it into a company. So the the discretionary trust could transfer the uh, land into a company that while there would still be stamp duty payable on that transfer, uh, there would be no capital gains tax.
1: Okay, good. So you basically have two options. You can amend the deed and turn the discretionary trust into a fixed unit trust. So then that might be stamp duty free if you are lucky. And you need to test it, but it would trigger CGT or you move the asset from the trust into a company and use a rollover and then you don't trigger CGT, but you trigger stamp duty. Correct.
0: And and bear in mind that it's got to roll into a company, not into a trust and that You Once it's gone into the company, you cannot access the general capital gains tax discount going forward.
1: Yes, of course, because the company doesn't qualify for the 50% CGT concession. Exactly. Good. So that means it's usually better to amend the trust deed and turn the discretionary trust into a, a fixed unit trust.
0: Normally, yes.
1: Of course, it depends on the size of the stamp duty and it depends on the size of the capital gain. It it all depends on where the money is sitting. So that was the first way you can reduce land tax by changing the um, type of trust, always assuming that it doesn't trigger stamp duty because otherwise you basically kind of just shoot yourself in the foot. The second way, and please correct me if from wrong, and this is also a question from Nicole Winter in Wollongong, is can you reduce land tax by having more entities buying the land so hence you get more tax-free thresholds? Because it could mean that, and I mean, of course, it always means you're not negatively gearing because if you want to negatively gear, for example, against your salary or so, then, of course, you want to have the title only in in your name because otherwise you lose half or a third of your negatively gearing. But if you're not negatively gearing, then it can be very advantageous to buy the property in your individual name with your company and your SMSF, for example. Yeah. Because you basically get three thresholds or even four thresholds if you buy together with your spouse. Or if you then add, add added children, you might get four, five or six thresholds depending on how many children you have.
0: I might answer this slowly. So that the, the first thing is, if you have different entities buying different properties, then each entity for that different property will be entitled to its own threshold. One of the dangers in terms of having a joint ownership is whether the land tax office is entitled to assess the joint owners as only being entitled to one threshold in respect of that property.
1: And when is that the case?
0: What we were talking about was the question which was asked by Nicole about can we reduce land tax by having land held by more than one entity? And The short answer, that's no. So the way that it works is that joint owners, which includes owners both in partnership and tenants in common, are to be assessed jointly as if all the land is owned by one person, which effectively means that there's no separate threshold. You only get one threshold for the land.
1: We have joint tenants and we have tenants in common.
0: Correct.
1: Uh, Okay, good. So at the moment you're talking tenants in common.
0: No, at the moment I'm talking both. Okay. Because, because joint owners for land tax purposes covers both joint tenants and tenants in common. And the way that it works is that you um, have a primary assessment, which will be the joint ownership, and then each owner will get assessed separately on a secondary assessment to have regard to the other land assets owned by that individual owner. And then in order to avoid the double taxation, the secondary assessment will allow a deduction for the tax payable under the primary assessment.
1: Yes. So that means if we have husband and wife and then let's say two adult children and a company and an SMSF and none of them own any other property, then you would be able to bring six tax-free thresholds into the secondary assessment, correct?
0: You would bring six tax-free thresholds into the secondary assessment, but what you'll find is that there won't be a deduction that's available in the secondary assessment because they'll still be jointly liable for the primary assessment. And so they'll only get one tax-free threshold between them.
1: Oh, really? So the primary assessment says what? The primary assessment says the land tax value is, let's say, $5 and... Hence, the land tax is let's say one hundred thousand dollars. I'm just making plugging numbers out of the air, uh, and then the secondary assessment says what?
0: well the in that example, the secondary assessment on an individual basis would assess each of them for uh, each of the five owners for one million being their their one fifth interest in that land that's worth five million. But yes. as a practical matter, the secondary assessment has no bearing because they're all going to be liable simply for the the primary assessment and they're jointly and severally liable for that as well.
1: So the primary assessment will actually already state the land tax? Correct. And the primary assessment will only have one tax-free threshold?
0: Yeah, the secondary assessment is only relevant where an owner owns other land.
1: So then the secondary assessment will list all the other lands?
0: Correct, including the, the land which is jointly owned.
1: I see, okay. And so the secondary assessment will then say, okay, from this $5 million property, your share was one million, you claimed a tax-free threshold of one fifth of this tax-free threshold. So hence, you still have some tax-free threshold left, which you can now use for the other properties. Is that how it works?
0: You would get on the other properties, you would get a land tax-free threshold so yes. that you get a single threshold for all of the interest in the properties that you've got.
1: Yes. So in total, you only get a threshold of, I think, 734,000. If you yeah. already, let's say, used up 100,000 for the first property, then you only have 634,000 left exactly. for the other properties. Correct. Correct.
0: Correct. Okay, yeah.
1: good. So that means you can't reduce your land tax by bringing lots of people into to Correct. the party. Correct. Why is land value for land tax purposes so out of date? You know the the land value is quite low in comparison to the market value?
0: The market value people make inferences because the market value of a property is always the improved value of the property whereas the land tax value is the unimproved value but you're quite right the valuations that are used usually lag so that in times when market values are falling what you'll find is that the land tax values are still artificially high because they're using prior year data.
1: They always find that the land values look ridiculously low. And, you know, disregard some, you know, variations in the market, 5% or 10%, I always think the land values look ridiculously low and I'm talking half of what the land is actually worth or less less than half.
0: Yeah, and, and you've got the opportunity to appeal the value. So when you think the value is artificially high, then you can appeal, and and if you've got enough expert evidence, there may be some base on which the land tax office will uh, reduce the assessment value, and you can also appeal. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, now my argument is the opposite. I think the land values are ridiculously low. I think the actual value of the land is actually much higher. But okay, good, it's just, it is what it is. versus city when you take an apartment block or a terrace house in the city then the land value is a small portion of the market value because there's a lot of property on the land but on the farm most of the value would be sitting in the land and so does this mean a farm worth, let's say, seven million would have a much higher land tax value than an apartment block worth seven million? Or actually I shouldn't use the example of a farm because a farm is exempt from land exactly. a working farm yes. is exempt from land yes. tax. So let's say it's a it's a hobby farm that is not operating. So a hobby farm worth seven million would have a much higher land tax value than an apartment block worth seven million, correct?
0: Yeah. So what your logic is When I take the improved value and I say the improved value of the country lot is seven million and the improved value of the city lot is seven million, then it's going to follow that it's more likely than not that the improvements in the city block will be a far greater value than the country lot. But you know, if you ignored that and said, look, I've got land value in the city of seven million for A big area and land value in the city for 7 million of a small area, then it's a bit of a trick question because they're both 7 million and they'll both get rated for land tax at 7 million on their unimproved value of 7 million.
1: Yes. And I meant the improved value. When the improved value is, so basically the market value is 7 million, then of course the unimproved land tax value would be much higher out in the country than in the city.
0: Normally, but not necessarily. So sometimes you also see out in the city that people have built mansions as the homesteads and that the value that's being attributed to the improved value is attributable to the mansion rather than the land. But you've just got to do it on a case by case basis.
1: Question regarding farms, farmland is exempt from land tax when you-
0: And and more accurately, it's land which is used for primary production and it has to be a dominant use.
1: Yes. And so how much primary production do you need to have a dominant use?
0: It used to be the case that if you could show that you had a dominant use alone, then it was okay. And a few years ago, there had been a couple of cases and, and the government uh, changed the law. There was a case for, I think it was Bob L up in, in the northern New South Wales, where he was doing primary production on land that had been land banked for development. And they brought in a rule that said something like this, that if the property has been rezoned so that residential is a permitted use of the land, then you need to show essentially a commercial working farm. But beyond that, what you're looking at is, for example, what is the revenue that's being derived from the land? So if you're saying... I've got some land and I'm getting, say, $10,000 of farm revenue, primary production revenue, and I'm also getting, say, $10,000 from allowing my neighbour to adjust some cattle and I'm getting $5,000 because I live near a tourist destination and people can park their cars when they go to the market on the weekend, then what you're going to say is, well, the primary production is only generating say, 40% of the income returned from the land, even though you might say that 75% of the area is being used. But the courts mm-hmm. will consider all of those factors in terms of what's the what revenue is being produced, what is the intensity of the use, so how many heads of cattle are being used, what proportion of the land is used for cropping. All those types of things will be considered when they come up to a decision, yes, is the land being used for the dominant purpose for primary production?
1: I think with cropping, it's quite clear because cropping is labour intensive and no city dweller is going to have a hobby farm and do extensive cropping. But I think you have quite a few hobby farms by city dwellers who are operational farms, but on a very limited scale. And Mm -hmm. it's probably difficult to say where it starts and where it stops, being a legitimate operating farm in the eyes of the Land Tax Revenue Office. Yeah. I'm just quite amazed by the number of city dwellers who have working farms within two hours of Sydney. Yes. But it's difficult to say that, yeah, of course you can't say it starts at 20 heads of cattle or 50 heads of cattle or 100 heads of cattle. It's probably not possible to give some rough guidelines like that. Yes because of course it also depends on the size of the land. Yes. So it probably comes down to averages. If everybody has 20 heads of cattle per square Kilometer, I, I, I clearly show my complete ignorance of farming. I don't know what an average, it probably also depends on the fertility of the land. But let's say the average in that area with that level of fertility in water. The average is 20 cattle per square kilometer. And then you only run one cattle per square kilometer. So then that would raise questions. But if you run a similar average per square kil- kilometers like your other farmers in the area, then it probably
0: is okay. Yes.
1: Okay. Is there anything else with respect to saving land tax that I haven't thought of?
0: No. The only other thing that's worthwhile talking about is main residences. Sometimes, so if you've got two properties, and I'm not talking about capital gains tax main residence, just my, um, land tax. Let's say that you've got two properties, and you've got one in the city, and you've got one in at a holiday or a, a, a coastal destination, and you have adult children and one of your adult children wants to live in the coast property then what you might do is transfer a very small proportion of that coast property to the adult child and then the whole of that property should be exempt from land tax because it is the main residence of one co-owner of the property.
1: Oh really? So doesn't, the child doesn't need to own the entire property. They just need to have a portion of it. And it might be 1%. And then, oh, okay. That's very good. Any more golden tips like that?
0: Not today. (laughs) (laughs) I think land tax is one of those taxes that is the government's love because it's almost very difficult to avoid if the government implements their tax policy correctly because unlike goods and services the land doesn't go away so it's it's very difficult to avoid land tax by saying i don't own the land
1: yes because it's registered your name is your name is on the title
0: exactly but anyway we'll see what the governments do with it
1: welcome back so there are ways to save land tax. You can make sure that the land qualifies for an exemption as predominantly used for primary production or as a main residence of one of the property owners. And make sure you get at least the general threshold. So don't hold the land in a discretionary trust. One approach doesn't work and that is just piling different entities onto the title. You still only get one threshold, one generous threshold even if you have 5 or 6 or 10 or 20 entities on the title. So to butt in, coming back to this beach house scenario again, Jeff had mentioned in the interview that you don't need to own the whole house to qualify for the main residence exemption for land tax. It is enough if one of the owners, however small that person's share in the house is, it is enough if one of the owners lives in the house as their main residence. So as an example, let's say you had a beach house which you had negatively geared as a rental property at some stage but it is now paid off and of course you pay land tax for this beach house. And now one of your other children moves into this beach house as their main residence and you transfer a small part of the title to them, let's say 1% as a tenant in common, then you would qualify for the main residence exemption for land tax, as I understand it. But to be sure let's double check this with justine again when you have a beach house and you have the parents as owners and then you have an adult child as an owner and then even though there are several owners. As long as one owner of the beach house lives in the beach house as a main residence, the beach house is exempt from land tax as a main residence. And can you just quickly reject my memory? Does that apply to only when it's joint tenants or does it also apply when it's tenants in common?
0: Yeah, the way in which it's owned is is irrelevant. Tenants in common and joint tenants, as long as, again, typically if it's joint tenants, you can't have a small proportion so joint tenants own the property in equal shares no matter what whereas tenants in common you're able to allocate a specific proportion to each tenant in common
1: so let's say that the parents own the beach house alone at the moment and then they bring a child in as a joint tenant then the child would receive basically one third but it's not really one third all three together own the property and, and then as tenants in common, you could then just list a certain percentage, but it's not possible to mix the two, of course. I'm sorry, I'm stating the obvious here. You can't leave the parents in there
0: as joint tenants. You and can. Then... Oh, you, can. you can, but you can mix it. So what you can have is, just to give you an example, you can have mum and dad as joint tenants as to 99% and child as to 1% as tenants in common.
1: Looking ahead, 2020 is almost done and dusted. We looked forward to it with so much enthusiasm. This time last year, we had no idea what we're in for. But the tables will turn. We will start looking up in 2021. We will have a vaccine soon. And then all this will just be a distant memory. To give you a well-deserved break from tax and everything, you get your last Text Talks episode on the 15th of December, apart from COVID 19 updates, of course. And this last episode on the 15th of December will be a new top 10 podcasts for accountants again. I hope you will like it. But until then, we will still have some work to do. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.